As Sam described to Amy in their recent interview, historically, when tyrants rise, the most important component for them to totally control is the information space, which suggests that the only way to ensure freedom from tyrants is making an information space which is not controllable. Hi, and welcome back to What Kind of Internet Do You Want? Amy is on maternity leave, so I'll be your host for the next few episodes. My name is Devin James, and I'm the co-executive director of Web3 Working Group, and I also co-founded Open Index Protocol with Amy oh so many years ago. Today, we're talking about Arweave, a protocol that I am a really big fan of, because it solves a problem that I've been thinking about for a really long time, and in my opinion, one of the most important problems that we face in the decentralized web space. At times it made me feel a bit like Chicken Little because I kept worrying about a problem that many others didn't seem to agree was an actual problem. And that problem is that we didn't have a protocol for the long-term preservation of data in a scalable way. In her recent interview with Amy, Tegan Klein of The Graph observed that a modern-day version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs would probably put data at the top of the pyramid. This is really interesting because... Over time, civilization tends to come up with solutions to standardize and make widely available each level of that hierarchy, which suggests that maybe it's time to protocolize slash standardize the availability of data. And Arweave is one approach to solving that problem that I am really positive about. Since our development of Open Index Protocol slash Alexandria, depended so heavily on decentralized file storage protocols, we had front row seats to the evolution from BitTorrent to IPFS to Filecoin and finally to Arweave. So in the first of this two-part video, I'm going to use that journey to help to explain the context behind the problem that Arweave solves. So let me take you back to when blockchain technology was first being considered for use cases other than value transfer. Late 2013, early 2014, Bitcoin's Price had just gone through its first major bill run, and the world was really starting to take notice. The first decentralized smart contract platform, Ethereum, had been announced and was in the process of being developed. Amy and I had been running a manufacturing business for the past few years, and we were thinking about expanding it into making miners with reusable hardware wrapped around upgradable ASICs. And to prepare for a pitch opportunity we were being offered, I decided to read the Bitcoin white paper myself. I was already a fan of the idea of Bitcoin, but I'd never read the white paper. To say it blew my mind would be a significant understatement. It changed everything for me. I had always been interested in the intersection of art and technology, and this was going to be a really significant one. For a handful of years, I worked in Hollywood as a visual effects artist, and on the side, I did some indies and a few Star Wars fan films some of which all needed to have a whole distribution pipeline figured out as well as the whole post process. This being a few years before like YouTube hit the scene. From all those experiences, I learned a few things about digital distribution. One, digital video distribution can be really hard to get right because between finding the best video codecs to balancing bitrate against quality and figuring out where to host it all that can provide enough bandwidth for it to play smoothly for everyone, it's just a lot of problems to solve. Two, the market for indies in Hollywood is very small, even though the audience that enjoys them is pretty large. So in a lot of cases, 
If someone had the opportunity to skip pitching the studios and go directly to the potential audience to crowdfund, a movie would be much more successful in getting made. And three, independent films have practically zero transparency when it comes to the business side of things, which can really burn the artists that worked on them for nothing but back-end points. So with those things in mind, when I read the white paper, I instantly knew that a transparent distributed ledger was the perfect solution to these problems. And in February of 2014, Amy and I wrote up the first public description of the Decentralized Library of Alexandria, eventually to be renamed to OpenIndex Protocol. We were working with a proof-of-work blockchain that could store arbitrary data in each transaction. But because of space constraints, we opted to only include index data in the distributed ledger. And then we relied on a content addressing-based decentralized storage protocol for file distribution. You've probably heard of it once or twice. It's called BitTorrent. And despite what you may have heard, it's not illegal or used only for piracy. It's completely legal software, and while its most popular use case has definitely been piracy, many entities have used it to distribute their own content because it's a very efficient way to distribute large files. However, it does have a significant downside. It doesn't offer file persistence. The availability of a file on the BitTorrent network is a direct function of the number of people seeding it. That is to say, storing it and making it available online, which itself is a function of its popularity. So if no one is seeding a file, you can't download it. It does support the option of seeding the file from a web URL, which somewhat addresses the problem, but it's not a real solution because nothing on the web is permanent either. It's certainly a popular myth that the internet never forgets, but it actually forgets quite a lot. The average life of a web page is just two and a half years. Anyway, <clears throat> back to our story. In early 2015, the Nascent Web3 community introduced a new take on BitTorrent, redesigned from the ground up to be more developer friendly and built around a global DHT right from the start so that file distribution could happen with zero central points of failure. It was called the Interplanetary File System, or IPFS, and we were big fans. Within a few months, we'd released a client of Alexandria that used IPFS as its base distribution layer, and we'd successfully tested sharing FLAC audio files and 10 megabit 4K video files with just a dozen or so seeders. Well, in the IPFS world, they're called pinners. So this was fantastic. Lots of other apps were being built around IPFS, and the future looked bright. However, it had a little bit of a rough time scaling. As the DHT grew larger and larger, it became harder and slower to find content. There were service providers being set up to store really large pieces of content on lots of nodes, but they weren't necessarily the fastest to access it. They just kind of knew that they had a problem with seed discovery, especially for files with very few pinners. It was getting a bit frustrating, but there's promise in the future. Filecoin. First conceptualized in the years following the launch of IPFS, and introduced to the world via its enormously successful crowd sale in 2017, is a decentralized storage network that aims to provide the world with a truly permanent and immutable data storage layer. Essentially, it is a smart contract-driven decentralized service that allows users to rent out their unused hard drive space in exchange for the native token of the network, Filecoin, and for others to pay for the storage of their files on the network. In other words, it's like a decentralized AWS storage service in which there is a market rate for storage, and as long as you or someone pays that market rate, your files will be stored and retrievable. This is a great way to solve the problem of data storage for a lot of content on the web. The kind of content that has some business model behind it or some patron who has a reason to continue to pay for it. So this was great for things like games or commercial music, stuff like that. 
But the question is, what about the rest of the web? Our interest was in archiving everything. In fact, the decentralized library of Alexandria's very first name was Archive Chain. And we knew that not all pieces of data would be able to find some patron to support their costs. So how could we ensure that it stayed available forever? So the solution we came up with in 2016 was to charge a publishing fee, which was derived either from the purchase price in the case of commercial content or the size of the data in the case of free content. Our assumption was that once at scale, the fees for commercial content would offset the costs of the free content, which theoretically could work, but it creates a really complex chicken and egg problem because we knew that very few people would be willing to pay for content until it was high enough quality. And high quality productions would stick to proven Web2 solutions until there was enough network effect within the Web3 solutions. And that network effect depended on there being a large user base, which itself depended on there being a large library of free content. So it was actually quite a bit more like a chicken and egg cubed problem. So while we had an approach conceptualized, we didn't implement it into OpenIndex Protocol yet. And at least a few of our users ended up burned by this. One of them had published data about a genome that he'd planned to use to protect against patent abuse if anyone ever tried to steal his work. And a few years later, when someone tried to do exactly that, he was able to find his OpenIndex Protocol record about the data he published. But since no one was still pinning the files themselves in IPFS, he wasn't able to retrieve the data. This was an obvious example of a piece of data that most people would agree should have remained available forever. But one of the most common questions to repeatedly come up over the years around this issue is whether it's actually a good idea to solve for data persistence with a permissionless protocol in the first place. What if the data is malicious? What if it's illegal? What if it's just not wanted? What if it's spam? Our thinking about this was first, that total censorship may be appealing in some cases, but it's never been a solution to an information problem. It's only ended up making them worse. As Sam described to Amy in their recent interview, historically, when tyrants rise, the most important component for them to totally control is the information space, which suggests that the only way to ensure freedom from tyrants is making an information space which is not controllable. Secondarily, we thought that it's not the responsibility of the protocol to solve for these subjectively definable problems. It's up to the people who are using it and building on top of it. And the only way to ensure that they're doing so responsibly is through the transparency you get by ensuring that content censorship didn't happen at the protocol layer. So in fact, it's not just not the responsibility of the protocol to solve for this, it's actually the responsibility of the protocol not to try to solve for this. But that doesn't mean it can't provide the tools that the application layer built on top of it can use to solve for it. We had some ideas about how to do this that Amy dubbed salutary protocols. But until we had a solution to the chicken and egg cubed problem, we weren't yet inclined to implement them into the protocol. But in early 2017, Sam Williams introduced a protocol that solves the persistent permissionless data storage problem in a really innovative way that didn't depend on commercial content being published, thus interrupting the start of the chicken and egg cubed problem. So tune in again later this week to learn all about how he did it. 
So if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that video. And if you enjoyed this video, please give it a like and share it with your friends. Thanks for tuning in. You can find me on Twitter at Devin R. James and follow the channel at Web3WG on all social networks. See you next time.